Thank you for joining us for another podcast from the Commonwealth Club. Hi. I am Anna Sale. I host the podcast Death, Sex, and Money from WNYC Studios. And we say it's the show about the things we think about a lot and need to talk about more. I am Andrea's colleague at WNYC. (laughs) We're colleagues. Yes. Uh, Andrea co-hosts the Trump Inc. podcast, which you have not heard. It's incredible. It's an incredible feat of journalism that they put out these investigative podcasts about the ways in which the Trump administration and the interests of the Trump organization have been uh, layered upon each other in many, many ways. Um, and she's, of course, the author of the new New York Times bestselling book, American Oligarchs. And that's what we're going to talk about this evening. When Andrea was getting ready to send the book out into the world, she called me and she said, Anna, there's a lot of death, sex, and money in here. We've got to talk about it. <laughs> there really so, is. <laughs> that's, that's what we're going to do this evening. But I want to start, Andrea, to hear about your process. Um, Andrea used to be my editor in the WNYC newsroom when we were covering politics together. And as I was reading this book, I was thinking, how has she managed to put together a story in a way that I've never thought about before, about two families that have been so thoroughly reported on and investigated, not just by the political press corps, but by Robert Mueller, by U.S. attorneys, um, by the tabloid press, and I came away sort of not just understanding these families in a new way, but also understanding the American moment that we're in in a really uh, deeper way. So, Andrea, when you were thinking about this book, what was the framing that you wanted to start with? Like, what, what did you feel like was the piece that was missing? And then where did you start the reporting to do that? So, um, first of all, thank everyone for coming. It's really great to see so many of you out here. Uh, And I hope for those of you who haven't had a chance to read the book that you get a chance to read it because I wrote this book to be read. Uh, And uh, it is a multi-generational saga. And I wanted to write it as a multi-generational family story, which is the basis of obviously a lot of fiction narratives and uh, is a really compelling thing to read. Um, So the way that this book began, I mean, it, it It came out of the reporting that we've been doing on the Trump family business and the Kushner family business at WNYC and ProPublica. And I had just finished reporting a big story uh, for The New Yorker that we do with ProPublica and WNYC about how Don Jr. and Ivanka Trump avoided criminal indictment. And after I finished writing that story, which was a big feat, I remembered that I had gotten many months earlier an email from an editor that I had not really followed up on. So I thought, oh, maybe I should be in touch with that book editor. (laughs) So I went and sat down with the book editor, and he had known that I had covered the Bridgegate scandal, which was when Chris Christie's uh, aides had closed off access lanes to the George Washington Bridge. And I had done a lot of reporting on that. And he said, you can do this story about the Trumps and the Kushners, same people, same world. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and I thought about it, and I decided he was right. Yeah. It was actually, it was literally the same people yes. and the same world, and it was people that I knew. So I had that as a starting point, and I began to think about the reporting that I had done and the ways that the patterns of behavior had been passed on from 
grandfather or father to son to daughter, father to son to son. And I thought to myself, how does that happen? And so as I began to think about the story, I began to think, what is it about these families that makes this not just a family story, but also a story about our time? And I had covered the 2016 presidential campaign, and I so I thought it wasn't like Trump just appeared on the scene and won the election because of a lot of flukes or a lot of explanations. It was about something that happened in our democracy. And I wanted to understand all of that together, the multi-generational saga of the families, but also of the democracy. So that's where the story idea came from. And I really knew right away that's the story that I wanted to write. Um, I didn't know, for example, when I put Ukraine on page one of the introduction that (laughs) I would be speaking to you all tonight when the president's defense has just uh, rested its case in an impeachment trial that involves Ukraine. Um, So it's sort of like the final chapters are still being written in real time. Um, But I knew that that was the story that I wanted to do. And then I just started to read everything. And one of the things that I find so amazing, and I know you know this, but like most people don't read everything. Most people don't read what is in front of them and they don't really understand it. And most journalists, I mean, every, I don't blame people because people are overwhelmed and there's a lot to read. But one of the things I did was I read every document. I read and read through every court file that I could find involving the Trump and Kushner family. I went and pulled all the land records. I just, I have so many stacks of documents. And then I put post-its on them, and then I took the post-its that were important, and I organized them, and I kept staring at them until a pattern emerged. And that is really how I wrote the book, which I know sounds painless, and it definitely wasn't painless. (laughs) (laughs) And you say in the notes on sources section of the book, which I read really closely because I'm like, how did she do this? Um, And you say that neither Donald Trump nor Ivanka Trump talked to you, would do an interview for the book. Charles Kushner, uh, Jared Kushner's father, and Jared Kushner answered some questions of yours, but not all of your questions. So how did you get into sort of the mechanics of these families and how they passed down lessons of how to maneuver in business and in politics without that access. It, so it turns out that a lot of people in New York have firsthand knowledge of these families <laughs> and were willing to talk about it. Uh. So um, I did speak to over 200 people, even, and there were people who identified themselves as the friends of Donald Trump or of somebody Trump or somebody Kushner. But they were, they said to me, you can't use my name because I don't want the surus, which is a Yiddish word for sort of grief. Uh, Mm. And uh, so they wouldn't, I didn't, I couldn't use people's names. So I just felt like, okay, I have to work extra hard. Every event that I'm going to write about, I have to really make sure I talk to as many people as I can get on the phone. And I just kept calling people and calling people and calling people. And I was kind of shocked when some people said, yes, they would talk to me, but people did. I had to protect a lot of people because I think everybody understands that our president is quite vengeful. So uh, people were nervous about talking to me and I said, okay, I will protect you. So that was the bargain. But I wasn't, I made sure that if it was in the book, it was going to be correct. And then I also hired a fact checker to check all the facts. So there's probably some mistakes. I'm sure that there are, but I really, really, really tried hard to get the story right by just talking to as many people as I could. And 
And when my editor said, you know these people, he really was right in, in ways more deeply than I knew. And even since I've written the book, I, it turns out that I know six people who are from Livingston, New Jersey, where the Kushners are from, or know people who are from Livingston, New Jersey, or who were at a family bar or bat mitzvah. It's a surprisingly small world. And you begin the book with the 2009 wedding ceremony of Ivanka Trump and Jared Kushner. And it's a who's who. You're naming all of these people from New York society, New York politics, New Jersey politics, New Jersey society. And then as as I was reading the book, I was thinking, wow, like there's so many ways in which these families were doing the same things in real estate, you know, 50 years before that wedding. Did they were they aware of each other before Ivanka and Jared so I, I mean, yes, because, um, and they were aware and there are sort of places in the book where their stories kind of mesh, but they weren't really working together or sort of involved in each other's world until that wedding. And one of the reasons why I wanted to start the book with a wedding is because it's a book about the marriage of money and power. So where better to start than at a marriage? <laughs> um, but also because... Oh, I mean, there's a reason why a lot of drama starts with a wedding, because it's a time when something is actually happening. A group of people comes together. It's kind of like a live event, live theater, and something transformative happens right in front of them. And it was sort of a moment of real drama. So that seemed like a good place to start the story. Plus, it was a place to show where here was Donald Trump and Charlie Kushner to a somewhat lesser extent, but also Charlie Kushner sort of gathering people around him in a display of power. And inviting all these people to the wedding that could serve their business interests. And in that way, sort of compromising people by bringing them close. And it's a big, big theme of the book about how the Trump and the Kushner family have brought people close to them, hired them, gotten in business deals with them, gotten other kinds of relationships, and then used that to enhance their own power. So... The phone call with President Zelensky sounds extremely familiar to me because it's a pattern that I've seen over and over and over in the history of the Trump business. So the Kushners and the Trumps operate in the same ways in a lot of ways, but they have very different backgrounds. Mm. And I want to spend a little time talking about Ray, Mm -hmm. um, Jared's grandmother. You rely on an oral history she gave about her family's escape from Mm -hmm. Poland and eventual settlement in, in New Jersey. Um, just tell us about Ray. What did you learn yeah, about? So Ray Kushner um, is, um, I mean, I spent a lot of time listening to Ray Kushner's testimony. She gave two oral testimonies, and she tells this incredibly harrowing story of survival, which I will abbreviate in a moment. But just on the question of process, while I was listening to her story, someone said to me, well, is her story true? And I said, well, it wouldn't be true. And then they said, no, apparently there are some people who did not tell the truth about their Holocaust experience. So I listened to Ray's testimony, but I went to the Holocaust Research Center and I said, please send me everybody's testimony that survived this town. So I listened to half a dozen people's testimony and that's how I put together the story. And the answer to her question was that basically her story did check out. And the story is that, so Ray Kushner uh, grew up in a fairly middle-class family in northeast Poland, what is now Belarus, and was the daughter of a furrier and had a very active civic life. And she began hearing stories about how Germans were coming and they were killing Jews in southern Poland, but nobody believed it. 
I mean, she said in her testimony, who would believe such a thing? And then the Soviet Union comes in and takes over, and then the Nazis come and take over, and things are okay. I mean, like, not awful for a while. Like, the Jews have to wear yellow stars and walk in the middle of the street. But then on one December day, thousands of Jews are rounded up, and they're brought into a courthouse, and... They're told, you go to the left, you go to the right, and one way meant to live and one way meant to die, and the Kushner family was sent to die, and they were on the line to get on a truck, which was taking people to mass graves where they were going to be shot and fall into their own grave. And somebody said, is anybody here a furrier? Because the Nazi army needed fur coats and hats for their army to march into Moscow. So they pulled the Kushner family out of the line. But at that moment... Ray Kushner's mother said, run to her older daughter, Esther, because she wasn't really sure if they were going to survive. She said, run, so one of you will survive. And her daughter, Esther, ran and was captured by the Nazis and boarded the trucks. Three members of that family were murdered by the Nazis. And eventually there's only, out of tens of thousands, there's only hundreds of Jews left. And they realized they were going to die. And they had thought for a long time there must be some reason God was saving them. The Nazis believed they were too valuable to kill them. But they realized, no, they were going to die. So they dug a tunnel out underneath the barbed wire and the searchlights. And they hid the bags of dirt that they were excavating in the walls and under the beds. And they crawled out several football fields in length, two feet wide. And everybody made it out of the ghetto Some of the people, including Ray Kushner's brother, ran in the wrong direction, and the Nazis captured them the next day. But she and her sister and her father escaped and lived in the forest with a band of Jewish partisans until the end of the war. And then after the war, they basically illegally crossed several borders. She met her husband, who was at that time named Yossel Berkowitz. And they walk and they sneak around border guards and they end up in a refugee camp in Italy where they're stuck because even after the Holocaust and even after yesterday is the 75th anniversary of the liberation of Auschwitz, and even after people knew about the camps, they were still not letting Jews into the United States and they couldn't go anywhere. So... They kept applying for visas, and then they realized that if Yussel Berkowitz posed as Ray's father's son, so as his father-in-law's son, they would have an easier time with immigration law. So he changed his name to Joe Kushner, and they were able to immigrate into the United States. They lost everything, so there were no documents that would tell a different story. And they arrived in the United States as the Kushner family with $2 in their pockets, and built a business. And that is the origin story of the Kushner family. That's Jared Kushner's grandparents. Jared Kushner's grandparents. Ivanka Trump's grandfather, I did not know until I read your book, in 1927 is when he incorporated his company, Mm. his real estate Mm. company, also a year that he was arrested. Right. So he was arrested for uh, being at a Klan rally, and we don't know what he was doing there. We don't know. I mean, literally, I went and sort of looked through all the documentation, and I never, I mean, I, it, was he a bystander? Was he being disruptive? We don't know. What we do know about Fred Trump was that he was sued by the U.S. Justice Department for uh, not renting his apartments to blacks. 
And this many, many, many years later, decades later, um, when Donald Trump was also working at the company, and they promised, I mean, there were many depositions showing that they, in fact, were, were not renting apartments to blacks. And they settled the case with the Justice Department and promised not to do it anymore. So I just want to, like, I want to take a moment. Like, when I was reading your book, Andrea, The Kind of Reporter You Are, you found this 1927 New York Times citation about arrest at a Klan rally and the number, the, the names of the men who were arrested, including Fred Trump. And then you make clear that it's not quite clear mm-hmm. what he was arrested for. But you say that there was some sort of citation for refusing to... Uh, leave a parade or something like this. So right. The, the, the clarity of your journalism mm-hmm. and the detail I, and the suggestion of what that could have been about, um, I just very much appreciate it I mean, it I tried as a reader. to write what I know, and one of the things that I felt was very important is when journalism and writing and documentation and academia and science are under such assault, I really wanted to really put together what I knew and what I could corroborate. And that's what I wanted this book to be. I wanted this to be a space of truth, not of what I thought or what other people felt. Something else you document thoroughly in the book is for Fred Trump. He knew that real estate was not just about location, location, location. It was about political donation, donation, donation. (laughs) And I wondered, do you have a sense of how he learned how to maneuver around New York City politics at that point in yes. city history? I mean, he was a really entrepreneurial guy. And he, I mean, he worked really hard. His father died, his father Friedrich Trump died in the Spanish influenza epidemic and he, when he was a teenager. And he had a job where he would pull carts on icy roads because the mules would slip. So he was a hardworking guy and he was in real estate. And what he figured out in the mid-30s is he wanted to get a piece of a bankruptcy, a company that was in bankruptcy court, was being divided up. And the judge really had wide discretion about who was going to get the pieces and he really wanted to get a piece. So he figured out at that moment who controlled the judges and who controlled the judges in Brooklyn was the Brooklyn Democratic political machine. And he understood that he had to cultivate ties with that Brooklyn political machine because they were doling out, they controlled the judges, they controlled the contracts. So he starts to create these ties and he gets a piece of the contract. But then his huge break comes when he realizes that the Federal Housing Administrator was also a tool of the Brooklyn machine. And he starts to curry favor with this person, a guy named Tommy Grace. And he gets this outsized portion of Federal Housing Administration loans, which enables him to build these huge projects in Brooklyn and Queens. And before World War II is over, he becomes a millionaire in 1940s dollars. And that's what launches him, the ability to see that It's government support of real estate that is going to lift it all up. And he had to get to the decision makers to make sure that when they had discretion, things were going to go his way. And I mean, that is so defines the Trump business model through the decades, currying favor with whoever, figuring out where is the person who is going to be able to deliver the thing you want and then figuring out how to curry favor with that person, whether it's through a donation, whether it's through giving to their favorite charity, whether it's through charming them and taking them on his helicopter. There were a variety of ways, but Donald Trump 
Fred Trump and then Donald Trump sort of used, went through all of them. And you talk about the Kushner family also figuring out how to pull those levers as well. But before we leave Donald Trump's parents, I, I want to talk a bit about his mother because some things I didn't know from the book. Uh, she was an immigrant from Scotland. And what was her job when she came to the United States? She was States? a domestic. So she worked for Andrew Carnegie uh, in his mansion. And it's where she got her taste. I mean, she worked in a sort of Gilded Age home. And it's where she got her taste that we're all now familiar with, columns, gold, Fancy things. I mean, it really does come from Donald Trump's mother. And it made me wonder about, the, do you have a sense of the class like ramifications of their marriage? They met at a dance hall, Fred Trump and Trump's mother. Like, what was, was that? Yeah, they were still immigrants. He was still on the way up. She was very, I mean, aspiring. And so they married. I mean, one of the things that's interesting about Donald Trump's family is his grandfather came to the country and made his fortune at a time when... Even though there was a lot of wealth inequality, you could still change your class. So there was more elasticity. So there was a lot of land. It had been appropriated from native populations, but it was basically given to immigrants. There were other government supports. And it meant that you could arrive in this country poor and become very rich. So there was much more mobility. It's something that's become much harder, especially since the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act of 2017, which has decreased social elasticity uh, and made it much harder for anybody, any Friedrich Trump arriving today would have a much harder time doing what Friedrich Trump did. And you note that Friedrich Trump in part left Europe because of the inheritance, the tax rules around it. Right. I mean, there's a lot of inheritance (laughs) stuff in the book. And I actually have the wills of Fred Trump and Joe and Ray Kushner. And I sort of traced the patterns and you can see how they are getting money to their children and grandchildren. And it's one of the real themes that I look at is the intergenerational transfer of wealth because it's what enables each successive generation to become wealthier and wealthier more and more quickly. And it's something that both families perfected the art of and are still doing to this day. So speaking of the next generation, when Donald Trump marries Ivana Trump, who wrote the prenup? Oh, Roy Cohn wrote the prenup. (laughs) Roy, so let me say something. There's so many. The epigraph of my book is a quote from an unpublished interview of Charles Kushner that was given to me by a a journalist who worked at the New York Times. And it says, no human being could write this script. Only God could have. And one of the things that kept amazing me is that people who showed up in early chapters of the book, like Roy Cohn is one, Roger Stone is another, Paul Manafort is another, I was all writing about them early on, and they're in the early chapters of the book, and then they come back in Act 5. I did not know that Donald Trump was going to say, where is my Roy Cohn, when I was writing about his relationship with Roy Cohn, who he met when the Justice Department was suing the Trump family over racial discrimination. And so Donald Trump hired Roy Cohn, and Roy Cohn did all kinds of... uh, hyper-aggressive and sometimes over-the-line legal work for Donald Trump. One of them was the prenup that they wrote with Ivana, in which Ivana Trump actually got very little. And um, the original, the first biographer of Donald Trump is an investigative journalist from New York named Wayne Barrett, who actually died the night before Trump was inaugurated. And all his papers are down at the University of Texas. And I went down to the archives and I looked at 300 boxes of papers Uh, The prenup is there. 
So wow. I actually read the prenup agreement with Ivana Trump that Roy Cohn had drawn up. And will you tell us who officiated their wedding? I didn't know this either. Uh, Peel, Norman Vincent Peel officiated their wedding. So, author of The Power of Positive Thinking. Yes. Huh. I mean, yeah. Weddings for Donald Trump are always power scenes. So, as was that, lots of city officials came. Same for his second wife, Marla. Same for his third wife, Melania. Hillary and Bill Clinton came to that wedding. During the campaign, Donald Trump talked about how people came to his wedding because he, including Hillary Clinton, because he gave money to her foundation. Thank you. So we've talked about political donations being a marker of both the Trumps and the Kushners' way of doing business. A story you tell in this book about Donald Trump when he uh, is kind of starting out on his own is a relationship he has with the New York City Housing Commissioner. Mm -hmm. And a phone call that this man receives after he denies affordable housing tax abatements for the Trump Tower... He gets a phone call. What was that phone call? He gets a phone call threatening him to, threatening to kill him because he hadn't given a tax abatement to Donald Trump. And this was a New York City housing commissioner, not a very fancy person. He lived in a not a very fancy house in Brooklyn and his phone number was listed. And he got this death threat uh, and he reported it to the NYPD the same day that he gets a death threat, the FBI hears from Donald Trump, who says he hears that somebody is threatening Tony Glidman, the housing commissioner. So then Donald Trump sues the housing commissioner personally for denying him his tax abatement. Uh, you want me to keep going? Tell where the story so, ends. Um, so he sues him. And then two years later, he invites him to a restaurant. And he says to him, why don't you come work for me? And this is somebody who was paid $80,000 a year and wasn't really going to go anywhere. And there's Donald Trump, who's by then quite glamorous and says, you're going to do all kinds of exciting projects. Come work for me. And so he does. He goes and he works for Donald Trump. And this is something that I've seen many, many times. And Tony Glidman was just one example of people who really got enthralled by the glamour and the glitz and sort of just the kind of thrill of the risk of being around Donald Trump. You just didn't know what was going to happen. And he goes to work for him and he has a miserable time. Donald Trump is abusive towards him. He's overweight. He ends up leaving Donald Trump after a period of time. And then he dies uh, basically of a stroke at a very young age. I think it was 59. And one of the reasons I wrote about Tony Glidman in this book was because it was such a like a prototype for me of a kind of relationship that I kept seeing with Donald Trump. People would go work for him. And the most extreme example of something that we've all seen, which is Michael Cohen, who felt just like he was going to, like Donald Trump was his shot. Donald Trump was going to make him a success. And Trump understood that about him. So he kept asking him to cross lines and he would ask him to do one thing. And then Michael Cohen would do it. And then he would do another thing. And then it got to the point where so many lines had been crossed, there was no turning back. And that, to me, was a real example of how Donald Trump uh, manipulated the people around him to achieve his goals. Something I have long wondered about is his relationship with his adult children, the, the three children who work for him now, or who work for the Trump Organization now, or Ivanka works for him in the White mm. House. Uh, uh, um, 
You write in the book that when Ivana and Donald divorced, Don Jr., who was then 12 years old, didn't speak to his father mm-hmm. for a year. Do you have a sense at all about how those adult children came back around? It's and so is it surprising to you that they have built their adult lives in such close proximity to him? I mean, it's such a complicated thing because... Um, Really, a lot of people told me that when his children were young, he was not interested in them. And I mean, I think we could sort of see from the way he led his life publicly that that rings true. But he also is somebody who believes in the importance of family. And all of his children, I think maybe for the same reason as somebody like Tony Glideman or uh, Michael Cohen wanted to be around him because he was glamorous and it was exciting and he had a TV show and he was sort of somebody. And that was a choice that they made. And, you know, they've had, I mean, their relationships, all of the, his adult children have sort of different and complicated relationships with him. Um, but they have all sort of returned to this family business. And in a lot of ways, and I think we're going to talk about this in a minute, it's a real archetype for what's happening in the government right now, which is that the people that Donald Trump favors are the ones that have power and uh, everybody else is on the outside. But when you're on the inside, I mean, we see people now, they keep doing it and they must be getting something out of that relationship. I want to move back to the Kushners for a moment because uh, something I didn't know in the night that the ways in which their sort of chronologies inter- are intertwined in the 1990s, Charles Kushner is ambitious. He's, he's sort of raised the profile of his family in New Jersey through political donations. He's very proud of this. It's caused some tension with his siblings. Um, you quote, uh, President Bill Clinton's remarks at uh, an oh, event yes. <laughs> at the Kushner family company in Charles Kushner's office. Um, and Charles Kushner has his eyes on the prize in Manhattan. Like Trump before mm-hmm. him, he wanted to move the family business to Manhattan. How did Charles Kushner sort of maneuver to try to get that, get that sort of stake in the ground in Manhattan power circles? So... I mean, he starts to look to Manhattan fairly early on in his career. Um, The point that you mentioned, he's really still building his empire in New Jersey. And he starts to realize, like Donald Trump also realized, the importance of political donations, political ties. He becomes the largest Democratic donor in New Jersey. Um, And as you say, like there's this troop of people that come through. Bill Clinton comes through. Rudy Giuliani comes through. Hillary Clinton comes through. They all have to go to his office. He takes them to the school that he's named after his father, the Joe Kushner Hebrew Academy, which has sort of Trump-sized letters on a hill in Livingston, New Jersey. And he does that to enhance his power. He buys into Manhattan fairly early a building called the Puck Building, which is in Soho, which is where the Puck, the magazine, was originated. And he sort of begins slightly to move in Manhattan. But then what happens is there's this dramatic betrayal in the Kushner family. Charlie Kushner starts to make illegal campaign contributions to um, New Jersey politicians, national politicians. He makes them in the names of other people who are his business partners, including uh, his brother and his sister. And Joe Kushner, to be able to pass on his assets 
uh, tax-free, this is Charlie Kushner's father, has set up this, these series of interlocking trusts and business relationships. So even though they, he and his brother don't work together, they're tied together. And his brother sees that all this money is flowing out illegally um, to political campaign contributions and also to speaking fees for Bill Clinton and Bibi Netanyahu. Uh, and he objects and he sues his brother, a very ambitious young U.S. attorney Chris Christie notices and starts to investigate Charlie Kushner for tax fraud and campaign finance violations. In the course of this, Charlie Kushner becomes convinced that his brother and sister have cooked up the case. And so he enlists a police captain from East Orange, New Jersey, to hire a sex worker to entrap his sister Esther's husband, Billy. So... Remember that this is the sister Esther who is named for his aunt Esther who's been murdered by the Nazis in the Holocaust. And he's been named for his uncle Hanon Kushner who is the one that ran the wrong direction when he escaped from the tunnel. And he has now entrapped his Esther's husband and with the sex worker and makes a videotape of it. And he holds on to it for a while But then he realizes the case isn't going to go away, and he sends it to his sister on the eve of her son's engagement party. Her son, Jacob, is one week difference in age from Jared Kushner, and they've grown up like brothers. And she brings the tape to the U.S. Attorney's Office, to Chris Christie's office, and Charlie Kushner is arrested for witness tampering. And he eventually pleads guilty to witness tampering and campaign finance and tax law violations and serves a year in prison. When he gets back to out of prison, he decides he's done with New Jersey. He's going to say goodbye. And that's when they sell what they've really built their empire on, which is a lot of sort of middle, modest, uh, suburban developments, housing uh, in the suburbs. And he sells a lot of it, over a billion dollars worth. And then he, the Kushner family, buys a building in Manhattan, 666 Fifth Avenue, for $1.8 billion, which is the, I know, only God could write the script. (laughs) He writes it. They buy it for $1.8 billion, which is the most anybody has ever paid for a building in Manhattan. Charlie Kushner cannot sign the loan documents because he's a convicted felon. So 26-year-old Jared Kushner signs the $1.8 billion dollar uh, deal on his birthday on his birthday uh, and they become Manhattan real estate moguls and it's because I mean it's clearly they wanted to make a, a splash and make a statement we've arrived around this time Jared also buys a newspaper the New York Observer and he becomes a very important personage instantly in New York because he owns this big building he owns a newspaper and everybody understands that he comes from this family of large democratic donors and he becomes a sought out person in New York really at that moment just as he is finishing law school and business school he's not even done with law school and business school when he makes these big purchases you are listening to the Commonwealth Club of California Hear thousands of our podcasts on iTunes, Google Play, and Stitcher. Learn about our travel programs to exciting domestic and international destinations. And when you're in the Bay Area, please join us live for any of our 500 programs each year. You can find us online at commonwealthclub.org. Now back to our program. 
I didn't fully appreciate until I read the book that it was, I'd always heard of 666 Fifth Avenue and that purchase being Jared's first big buy mm. and didn't realize it was because his father yeah. was I mean, they're very, very close. And so far as I know, I mean, they speak to each other every day, so far as I know, to this day. Um, so I think it was very hard for people who worked with them to understand, was it Jared, was it Charlie? But they were very, very close in acting in concert. And how old was Jared Kushner when he made his first big political donation? Eleven. <laughs> this was one of the donations that his father had orchestrated. Uh, and so if you, you can go and look it up in the federal elections, it says, uh, records, it says Jared Kushner student. And it was like $1,200? Two, $2,000. $2,000. It was two separate contributions of $1,000, I think. And how did Jared Kushner understand the prosecution and so, the time served of his father's? The, a family narrative of resentment really develops. Charlie Kushner, when he gets out of jail, says, my parents who are in heaven would forgive me for what I have done, but they would never forgive my brother and sister for collaborating with the government. And Jared Kushner really nurtured this narrative. Uh, And during the 2016 campaign, um, according to Chris Christie's book, but corroborated, he said to Chris Christie, this was not a matter for prosecutors. This was a matter for family or the rabbis to settle. And he very much felt like this was a Chris Christie hit job on him. He was very upset when Trump wanted to hire uh, Chris Christie and did hire Chris Christie to be his transition chief. Um, But as you know, there is no Chris Christie in the cabinet. Jared Kushner, after the election, had Chris Christie fired as transition chief. And the 30 binders of material that had been vetted by Christie's team of vetting information on potential policies and potential cabinet appointees, those 30 binders of material were tossed into the Trump Tower dumpsters. How do you understand, one of the things that you note in the beginning of your book is the ways in which all of this is systemic. Mm-hmm. And one of, a statistic you note is how in the last 30 years, the rate of white collar crime yeah. investigations has declined. And it made me wonder, pause, with the Chris Christie investigation of Charles Kushner, who's yeah. this major Democratic donor. How do you think about it? Do you think of it like this was political? Do you think of it like clearly he did, he broke the law, so whether it was political or not, it doesn't matter? Chris Christie was a young Republican prosecutor on the rise, and Charlie Kushner committed some very serious crimes. And having really read the court file and understanding it, and there were, there were, I mean, there wasn't just this Chris Christie case. There was a FDIC case, and there was an FEC case, and Charlie Kushner was in a lot of hot water, and uh, there were a lot of people looking at him, not just Chris Christie, and he really crossed some lines. But that doesn't mean that Chris Christie also didn't see that there was, um, you know, it, I mean, he was an ambitious prosecutor, and this was a high-profile Democratic donor, so, and he wanted to run for governor on a platform of rooting out corruption. So this is a pattern that we see a lot uh, in New York and New Jersey of sort of ambitious prosecutors uh, 
talking about how they're going to get rid of corruption and then running for office on the basis of that. There's been a, I mean, Chris Christie did it, Rudy Giuliani did it, Elliot Spitzer did it. They all got rid of corruption. Andrew Cuomo <laughs> did it. Yes, we have no more corruption in New York and New Jersey, as you know. <laughs> um, so... Yeah. So, I mean, I think that it it is complicated. And one of the things I really hope that I make clear in my book is that these stories are complicated. And I wanted to have all the layers of complexity there. And there's not necessarily just, you know, one way to say, like, here's the hero, here's the villain, here's the good guy, here's the bad guy. It's just the story of what happened, which, like all human stories, is an immensely complex story. Having said that, I mean, I do think the white collar prosecution thing, I mean, what I mean, the fact that Chris Christie charged Jared Kushner's father with campaign finance violations at a time when his own party didn't really believe that there should be campaign finance violations and tax fraud at a time when his own party was cutting taxes is an extraordinary historical fact. But I do think that we're in a very perilous moment now with white collar prosecutions. And in fact, I had to, while I was writing the final version, I had to update it because they came out with a new version and white collar prosecutions were at a new historic low from when I first wrote in the book. Uh, And I think it's a problem. And I think that, I mean, the Bridgegate case was heard before the Supreme Court two weeks ago. And um, if the plaintiffs win, there will be very few tools for prosecutors to go after corruption in these kinds of cases in the United States. Yeah, I'm looking at the citation. You say in 2019, the rate of prosecution dropped again to the lowest level in 33 years. Clearly, there's not a lot of white-collar crime happening in America (laughs) these days. (laughs) Right. Um, You mentioned Jared Kushner's purchase of the New York Observer, and I want to spend a little time on media because I think that's an important part of this story as well. Um, The New York Observer uh, is this paper that covers real estate, covers power in the New York City area. I did not know that before Jared Kushner bought the New York Observer, it was looking into his father's business dealings yeah. um, while he was uh, on the Port Authority board, um, which is a very powerful, politically powerful position. You see, it is the same people because the Port Authority was the agency that was involved in the Bridgegate scandal. So it's like really, really like the, the same, same people. people and cast of characters. <laughs> it's extraordinary. Anyway, sorry. And do you, do you feel like that, um, was that at all part of his interest in this paper? Um, unclear. I mean, you know, what we know is that the way that Jared Kushner, backed up by his father, Charlie, used that paper was to enhance his family's business interests and ultimately to enhance uh, his father-in-law's business interests. And there was a lot of tension at the paper because Jared Kushner wasn't a journalist and he came to the Observer and he would, I mean, one of the first things he did, though he denies this, was he asked his editorial staff to prepare a hit job on Chris Christie. And he, he, that word hit job was used a lot at the New York Observer. And various editors would say, we're not writing a hit job on such and such a person because it's a textbook example of malice, but also because nobody's heard of this person that you want me to write a hit job on, not Chris Christie, but somebody else. But there was a lot of that, a lot of a sense of the media and the newspaper was a tool to advance Jared Kushner's business interests. And one of the reasons I dwell on this in the book, because at the time, Jared Kushner was sort of seen as part of the New York establishment. And um, New York society sort of embraced him. He was seen as an important person. Same for Ivanka Trump. And 
So people cut him a lot of slack in the way he was using the newspaper. But when I went back and I looked at the pattern in light of the way the current White House sees journalism, it was just so clear that they felt that journalism and newspapers were tools for an agenda and that that really stretched back at least to Jared Kushner's time in the New York Observer, if not prior to that. How did Jared Kushner become close with Rupert Murdoch? So he um, had met him early on, around the time he was buying the Observer. He sought out his advice as a sort of mentor. And he became friends with him and with his wife, Wendy Murdoch. And one of the things that people at the Observer told me was that he would come into the newsroom and he would say, oh, I spent the weekend with Rupert and Wendy on their yacht. And he would talk about it. And so it sort of started out being a social thing. And over the years at the Observer, he really began to adopt Rupert Murdoch's worldview and his view of how news media, news media should be used. So he began to adopt more and more conservative viewpoints, which surprised his own staff because people thought of him as sort of this vaguely liberal democratic person. But he began to take on quite conservative political views. And there's a scene in the book where after Mayor Bill de Blasio is elected uh, or is wins the primary, so when you were in New York, I didn't know this was happening, but he, de Blasio wins the primary and he has a make nice meeting with the real estate people because everybody realizes once he's won the primary, he's going to win the mayoral election in real estate, did not back de Blasio. So they have a make nice meeting and Jared Kushner starts vocally criticizing Bill de Blasio and his progressive agenda and saying it's going to be the ruination of New York City. And people in this meeting were so surprised because they were sort of, first of all, Jared Kushner had not really expressed political views, but they didn't understand how conservative his political views were. So one of the things that I show in the book is that his current political view is not a radical break, as some people in New York believed, but actually... Uh, derived from a sort of whole thread of development. And the friendship with Rupert Murdoch was definitely part of that. And I should note that Bill de Blasio primary is 2013, the right. 2016 election not long after right. that. Right, right. That is something that I thought about a lot, is how utterly consistent the Trump family in particular mm-hmm. and Donald Trump in particular yeah. has been. Um, in the 80s and 90s, I wondered, looking back at this record, of not just how he behaved, but how the media covered him mm-hmm. during that time. Um, my sense is that he, he was seen as sort of always kind of like a little bit of a joke, but a spectacle who you still invited to parties. Mm-hmm. And even the kind of like the people who wanted to make fun of him, they did it in kind of a smug way, like Spy Magazine and the right. short-fingered Vulgarian kind of um, framing of him. And I wondered if... Do you feel like the New York City press corps, whether they were covering business or politics, um, missed something big on not fact-checking Donald Trump, not mm-hmm. um, shunning yeah. him? I mean, uh, I think except for Wayne Barrett, I think people really um, did miss that part of the story. I mean, I think, you know, one of the things that I don't think that people realized was going on with both the Trumps and the Kushner family is that politicians which were many, many of them Democrats, went to these families to ask for donations and treated them in a fairly, um, gave them a light touch. People took their cues from that, 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 you know, he was sort of, they were both courted 
And it was a way that he could compromise people because he could make these enormous political donations and everybody knew it. So that sort of kept the criticism at bay, which I think kept the media at bay, that he was sort of seen as kind of the enfant terrible, and if he lied, so what? What was the implication? So people definitely criticized him. I mean, by the time he'd run for campaign, he'd already sued uh, Tim O'Brien, who was at the, at the time at the New York Times, for writing a book saying he wasn't a billionaire, he was only a multimillionaire. And he had sued a lot of people, and he had treated media very aggressively. I mean, he did, he threatened a lot of reporters, and he actually sued Tim O'Brien. And he threatened to sue a lot of reporters. He also did something, which I talk about in the book, where he would try to give people tickets to sporting events. And then once they had the tickets to the sporting events, he would call their editors and say, like, they were compromised. And that's how he got a number of very sharp reporters off the beat. So... Wow. Yes, I think, yes, to what you're saying, but I also think he had a lot of techniques for manipulating people that were not immediately apparent. Mm. (laughs) What do you think is, like, the family code of the Trump family? What, What are the sort of organizing principles? So I think the family code is family above everything, and I think we have seen that brought to the U.S. government, that people, so first of all, his actual family... But then people who are loyal to him, those people are favored. Everybody else is on the outside. Everybody else is expendable. And there is this blurring of family interests and business interests that goes on. I mean, it's really hard for me to overstate how crazy this is because I spent so many years looking at political donations and reading FEC disclosures and seeing like where the money went and how it got into politicians' pockets. And with President Donald Trump, people just pay him directly and outright every single day. They go to his hotel, they go to his golf clubs, they might buy a condo. They just pay him money and he is tracking who pays him money. President Zelensky in that phone call made sure to tell him, I stayed in a Trump-branded hotel because Donald Trump cares who's paying him money. So it is an extraordinary thing that people can pay him money and be on the inside. And that is really what our government has come to. And it's one of the reasons why, I mean, when I wrote, when I proposed the title for my book, American Oligarchs, I didn't know what was going to happen. But what I have increasingly seen is this government that is just being pushed towards oligarchy, which means extremely wealthy people can manipulate it in ways that benefit them and then get the government in motion to do things that will enable them to make money even faster. And unfortunately, that is the position where we're in right now. I want to have you read a section where you sum that up in a way that is chilling. Um, (laughs) It's on page 407. Uh, So this is from the epilogue. Um where I have just finished talking about Hannah Arendt, and you're going to have to read it to find out why. (laughs) Um, Tilting the country towards oligarchy requires confusing, as Trump did in his first formal press conference as president-elect, company and country, making no distinction between the national interest and what he sees as his broader family interest. Trump's family is, necessarily, his own family, his wife and children and their spouses and their children. Family also includes those officials and employees from whom he demands obsequious loyalty, though unlike his actual family, these people can move in and out of favor at Trump's whim. 
And you go on to say in that section, it ends, a government racing towards a world where it's impossible to play by the rules because the rules exist only according to Trump's whim. And thinking about it becoming, even if you want to play by the rules, not knowing what the rules are. Right. We see that in the impeachment trial where there have been, you know, seven sets of rules shown. Okay, so Trump um, didn't do anything wrong. He didn't commit any crimes. It wasn't a crime. Don't pay attention to what John Bolton was saying. Whatever John Bolton says is false. Okay, if he did what John Bolton says, that's not a crime either. So there's this constant sense of a moving target. And you see this in this sort of like pugilistic court cases that I've been following where Trump has been suing various people who want documents and things from him. And there's a sense that whatever the rule is, it doesn't apply to him. So, I mean, I I found myself in a Manhattan courtroom uh, with Donald Trump's lawyers arguing, yes, he could shoot somebody on Fifth Avenue and not be investigated so long as he's a sitting president. That is the official position of Donald Trump's lawyers, and that case is going to the Supreme Court in March, even though he has lost it at all the lower court levels. So it is the case that they are making, that the, very explicitly that the rules don't apply. And I think that he, he has managed to live his life that way. And I think that we are now at this moment where that is really being tested. And the question is, is sort of, if there is no reckoning for Donald Trump, how does he interpret how the rules apply to him and how the rules go forward? I'm going to ask a few questions from the audience now. I uh, do want to say one thing, though. The last word of the book is hope. <laughs> and I really, really worked hard on... I, I'm, I, I promise you I didn't make you read 425 pages and then just say, be hopeful. There is a really rational and, um, I hope, well-argued reason about why I still have hope. And um, so... I want you to get to that word. (laughs) And I will tell you, because Andrea is not just an incredible investigative reporter, but also a sort of poet, hope, it is is motivated by a conversation she had with another Kushner, Tony Kushner. Mm. (laughs) No relation. (laughs) Yes. Um, Which I thought was just a wonderful little flourish. A question from the audience. Can you tell us about the Kushner family ties to Saudi Arabia? So far as I understand, the Kushner family ties to Saudi Arabia really did originate with the, during the campaign and um, in the presidency. I, I mean, it's, I spent a lot of time looking to see if there were financial ties or business ties that predated that, and I couldn't find them, which doesn't mean they don't exist because it's hard to uncover their business relationships. Um, but it does seem something that developed out of Jared Kushner before he had views on most things, had a very clear view on Israel. And he really aligns himself with the Likud party, Bibi Netanyahu. Bibi Netanyahu was a family friend. He played basketball with Jared in Livingston. Uh, And so that is Jared Kushner's political view. And the relationship with the Saudis really seemed to come from his believing that that relationship could support the state of Israel. And we see it today in the peace plan that Jared Kushner released, which I haven't studied uh, because I've been talking about the book. Um, but uh, this, that, that is the sense that the Saudis could support him. And he forged this relationship with Mohammed bin Salman, who's um, like Jared Kushner, sees himself as a disruptor, 
like Jared Kushner, has a fraught relationship with his own family and was seeking power in Saudi Arabia. And they developed this relationship. And after the murder of Jamal Khashoggi, Jared Kushner was asked, how can you support this family? And basically what he said is the Middle East is a very tough place and you have to have some allies and I'm picking the Saudis. Um, But he continues to break the rules. I mean, he exchanged WhatsApp messages with Mohammed bin Salman, even though he was advised against it by his own intelligence agencies. And in fact, there was evidence that U.S. intelligence agencies thought the Saudis were spying on the U.S. using Jared Kushner as a vector and, and warned him against it. Uh, so, but the relationship continues. I'm interested to hear how you answer this question. What is the end game for the Trumps and the Kushners after 2020 or 2024? So not entirely clear, but one of the things that's become interesting to me through this Ukraine scandal is when we in our Trump Inc. podcast first started investigating Donald Trump's business, I really thought we were looking for ways he was sending himself money. And that is something that we've looked at. But the book is titled The Marriage of Money and Power. And I actually think that one of the things that Donald Trump wants to do is enhance his power. That's what he was doing in Ukraine. I mean, there were a lot of business interests swirling around Ukraine. Rudy Giuliani and his associates had all kinds of energy deals. There is a Ukrainian oligarch named Dmitry Firtash who has been indicted by the U.S. and is fighting extradition and is pouring money into that side of things. So there's a lot of business interests swirling around it. But so far as I can tell, what Donald Trump was actually just doing is using the levers of government to enhance his own power. And that seems to be what he's really tried to do throughout his career is enhance his own power. So I guess enhance his own power in ways that I haven't thought about yet. (laughs) So I don't know. I like this question because it's about the ways in which how New York society and elite New York is repositioning itself vis-a-vis the Kushners and and the Trumps. Um, Do you think Carly Kloss purposely tried to avoid association with the Kushner family until Project One Way? And can you give some backstory? You know, okay, so Carly Kloss is married to Jared Kushner's brother, Josh. Um, And she was asked about whether she would wear a particular outfit in Project Runway to a Kushner or to dinner with the Kushners. Uh, And then she... Uh, released a video saying, I did not vote for Donald Trump in the election. I mean, I... This is Jared Kushner's sister Jared Kushner's sister-in-law. I have really not done much reporting on Carly Kloss, so I <laughs> don't want to get too much out of my skis here. Um, but in the rest of the Kushner-Trump world, these kinds of utterances are quite deliberate. Um, but I just don't know because I haven't reported it, and I just did not spend a lot of time looking into that particular relationship. I want to make sure you have time to sort of um, brag about some documents that you dug up mm. because you looked at documents that other people have not looked closely at. Uh, what are what are one or two that you dug up that you feel really proud of? So I think the most obvious one is the, the Hebrew Immigration Aid Society case file on Jared Kushner's grandparents, which shows the history of their arrival. It shows how they arrived in the U.S. with $2 in their pocket, how they were helped and how they were set up. And there were just detailed notes about the interactions that the caseworkers had at the time. So this was just an extraordinary document to look at this case file, uh, a real piece of the historical record. Um, There were a couple of other things that I found along the way. One was an affidavit written by Ivanka Trump 
at the time that Eric Schneiderman, who was the attorney general of New York and resigned in disgrace after it was found that he had abusive relationships with women. But before that, he sued Trump University for fraud and settled it for $25 million. And the Trump family, after they filed that lawsuit, filed an ethics complaint saying that Eric Schneiderman had been shaking them down. And in the course of that, Ivanka Trump filed an affidavit in which she talked about, from her perspective, all the ways that Eric Schneiderman had courted her. And it was so interesting to me because you just don't normally get that kind of frank conversation from political donors. So she talked about how he wanted to take her to Jean-Georges Van Gerichten, which is a very fancy restaurant in the Trump International Hotel in New York, and meet with her and Jared Kushner's 20 influential friends, and how he wanted her to contribute to the um, American Friends of Israel concert with Yitzhak Perlman, and how uh, Eric Schneiderman wanted to her to go to a fundraising event for, yes, Kamala Harris, uh, when she was running for attorney general. And she sort of talks about how she does all of these things because she wants to get on his good side, basically. It's not quite her language. That, that's basically what she's saying. So it's an incredible affidavit from the inside about how power and political donations work in New York from her point of view. Uh, so that was very, very interesting to me. I mean, there was some, a whole bunch of other stuff that I found on like social media and videotapes. And I watched a lot of Apprentice episodes. <laughs> <laughs> oh, here's another question for the audience because I want to I want to know about this. Before Trump's inauguration, Ivanka Trump met with Al Gore about the climate. Was there any kind of reporting about this meeting that you know about? Um just a little bit. I mean, I don't think it went anywhere. I know more about um, the other meeting that she had with Cecile Richards, where she proposed that if Planned Parenthood could stop providing abortion services, she could call off the Republican insistence on defunding uh, Planned Parenthood. So that definitely happened during that period. I know less about the Al Gore meeting, but I don't think it, I mean, there's, you know, the U.S. has retreated from the Paris Climate Accord, so I think the results are... <laughs> And how should, how should we think about how Ivanka Trump operates as a, as a political operator and as a business person? So Ivanka Trump is very much like her father. And I think if you read the book, you will understand all of the ways she's like her father. The, her relationship to the truth, her view of the correct business practices. She's much more polished than her father. And I think one of the things about the wedding scene that I talk about is how so Ivanka, unlike her husband, Jared Kushner, and her father, Donald Trump, is actually a child of the Manhattan elite. And she was really accepted in the Manhattan cultural elite and gave them a kind of access to that world through her. But when it comes to politics, she is absolutely 100% loyal to her father. Now, something interesting about Ivanka Trump is she doesn't participate much in the sort of bullying and criticism, which she wants to sort of tell a positive story of the administration. So that is what she sees her role is. Occasionally she steps out of that role. But I, um, there were a lot of people in New York who told me that they were friends with Ivanka, they were friends with Jared, and they, when they went to the White House, they were sure that they were going to represent the New York point of view on things and prevent their father or father-in-law from doing anything too crazy. And there's a lot of betrayal in the book. That is one of the levels of betrayal, where a lot of people who thought they were friends with them and thought they were part of their world were shocked when they went to the White House and uh, were not more forceful advocates of what they viewed as their side. 
you say the New York way of doing things. Um, and that is something I thought about a lot reading about Ivanka's grandfather and then her father and now where we are in the 21st century um, and how the New York way of doing things in the mid 20th century was paying off politicians, mm-hmm. um, getting the approvals you needed to get. Um, how much do you think about where we are now with our the U.S. government, the federal government? How much of it is a sort of New York style local politics. Yeah, uh, a lot more than it used to be. You know, one of the things that I also talk about in the book is the destruction of campaign finance laws. And um, I went back and I read the Citizens United case and I read the thing that Obama said about it, which kind of shocked me, which was that it was going to allow foreign influence in U.S. elections, which he said in his State of the Union address in 2010, which I hadn't really noticed at the time. And one of the things that's happened as a result of the destruction of the campaign finance system is money can come in to the election system in so many ways that if you are a businessman or woman, you are crazy to not give to the system because it's not very much money in terms of your bottom line. So two things are happening. It has been made much more systematically easier for people to contribute to the political system in all kinds of dark money in nefarious ways. But also the president has signaled that if you give to him, he'll give you something. And we see in the recent indictment of Lev Parnas, people know Lev Parnas, right? And Igor Fruman, the Rudy Giuliani associates who were working with him in Ukraine. They were indicted for funneling Ukrainian money into the U.S. electoral system. Why? Because they wanted an energy, they wanted to set up an energy business and they wanted to set up a marijuana business. And they also wanted some stuff to happen in the Ukrainian world. So their, so their worldview, this sort of is the Ukrainian way of doing things brought right into our governmental system, this incredibly transactional nature of things. And uh, did anybody listen to the tape that Liv Parnas released of, you know, Trump at this dinner party? And they're like, he's like, yes, I'll do this for you. Yes, I'll do that for you. I mean, he is a transactional politician. He said at his inaugural at his um, acceptance speech to the Republican convention, I understand that the system is rigged and I alone can fix it. Nobody understands the system better than me. And I think it's true. Nobody does understand this system better than me, but he hasn't fixed it. He has broken it beyond recognition. He has made it possible for everybody to behave in the way he did as a businessman. And he has telegraphed that people will be rewarded for behaving in that way. I have one last question for you, Andrea, but but I want to let you all know that Andrea is signing books. Oh, afterwards. yes, I'm signing books. And I want to say, even if you have a book, please buy another one. <laughs> because, you know, the RNC spent $94,000 to bulk buy Don Jr.'s book so he could be on the bestseller list. And I have you all. So please buy my book. Gift it to a friend. I read the audio book. Uh, if you like audio books, it's also on Kindle. Uh, and I am very much would like to sign them for you. And also, please read it. Yes. <laughs> and it's already been on the New York Times bestseller list, but we can all keep it there. So my last question for you, Andrea, is this is a story about two families, the Kushners and the Trumps. It's also a story about American systems and political structures. And after you did this reporting, how much do you think the trouble we're in is because of one of these families in particular? And how much do you see them as participating in systems that are breaking down and will continue to be broken even if they are not on the scene? Yeah, I mean, I think both. Um, 
American democracy is very broken, and that created an opening for somebody like Donald Trump to take over. But I also think that Donald Trump has specifically corroded democratic institutions and acted... Um, he didn't need to learn oligarchy from the former Soviet Union because he practiced it in New York. And he understood that he could give money to politicians and get what he wanted. And he corroded the system from within. And I didn't quite understand that when I started my reporting, that that kind of behavior also had been immensely damaging to democracy. And then he brought it to the White House. So I think the answer is it is both the specific choices of these two families but also the fact that we as a society have failed to defend our democracy against all these assaults. Now, I do really believe in hope, and I believe in hope because we can still push back on the assault on truth. This book is an attempt to say, here's a, here's a record that I made. Records exist. Truth exists. And I'm still doing that. So I still have hope. Thank you, Andrea Bernstein. Thank you for coming. Mm.